Hello, we are Roxana and Melissa from Arduino Education. Hi. Welcome to the second episode of Arduino Education podcast. Thank you all for listening. And if you missed the last episode, you can find the link to it on our Education website. We publish a new episode weekly with a new guest. Yes. On our first episode, we talked about programming and education with Damien Key, a technology education expert from Australia. Today, we will discuss open source and maker education, as on September 18th, we celebrate Software Freedom Day. It is one of the worldwide celebrations held by Digital Freedom Foundation, an NPO that focuses on promoting free software, open hardware, and access to knowledge via technology. Yeah, that's right. So to learn more about open source and maker education, let's welcome our special guest, Nathalie Duponcel. Thank you for joining. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you as our guest. Nice to see you again. Natalie is an, an Eduvision friend, so it's really great to have them now for the podcast. Yes, it's great. It's really great to be back. So Natalie is a doctoral candidate in educational technology at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. She's a certified primary school teacher, but she has also taught at the primary, high school, and university levels. Natalie's research focuses on maker education and the benefits of DIY, design, and maker activities have for student learning, as well as how schools can optimize conditions to facilitate teachers' use of maker and design-based pedagogues. So she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> But Nathalie, before the interview, uh, let's start with a few short questions for our Eduvision Friends book, right? Sounds good. So what makes you feel inspired? Uh, you know, I have to say that one of the things that inspires me the most is actually working with youth and the kids. Um, youth and kids don't have the inhibition that adults have you know they they mm. think of a, a problem and they think of these wild solutions that you know adults would be like oh nobody's gonna like that idea or no that can't possibly work but they just come up with these wild ideas and yeah sure a lot of the time it doesn't work out but it's just that enthusiasm it's the creativity they have they don't have you know as adults we say we have to think outside of the box Kids don't have that box yet. You know, they're thinking yeah, everywhere. Um, and mm. so, you know, I really find them inspiring. The The ideas that they have are just so creative. Uh, I, I'm thinking of a youth right now who, you know, he gets annoyed that his cell phone keeps, his battery keeps dying. So he wants to make um, shoes that will recharge his phone because he's w walking all the time and he's creating, you know, energy through his walking. So he wants to create shoes that can recharge his phone. I mean, what a fantastic idea. I don't know if it will ever come to fruition, but I'm sure he's going to learn a lot by giving it a try. Um, so, you know, it's really the um, the youth and the kids that I work with that inspire me to make. I go home in the evenings thinking about their projects, looking up online, like, how could we do this? Um, and it just really motivates me and it makes me love making even more than I already do. They have like this kind of yes mode. Yes. Exactly. Adults, we always say like, no, I'm not going to be able to do this or it's not a good idea, but they're like, yes, I can do this. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, whereas adults, you know, we often say, oh, that's not really possible. They're, they just yeah. look at you and say, why not? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, <laughs> and then you stop and you think. Okay, well, maybe there sure. is not a why not, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, if you can't really answer it, like, maybe we should try. We should give it a try yeah. anyway. And you know, what? it's they learn so much, even if, as I said, it doesn't come to fruition, they learn so much and they, 
they are just thrilled with the skills that they've developed. So, mm-hmm. and I think also just kids are so used to being in schools where they're told what to do and how to do it. Whereas with making, they have this opportunity to decide themselves what they want to do and how they're going to do it. And as I said, even if it doesn't work in the end, you know, the final product that they had wanted, just the journey has been so enjoyable to them that they want to come back and try again later. Um, that, that's, that to me is wonderful. Yeah, great source of inspiration. Yeah, exactly. Kids. <laughs> and you already mentioned, for example, this one young kid, but are there any other people, books or resources that have been particularly influential for you? Oh, wow. I mean, so many sources. I think we're in such a lucky age to have the internet. You know, yes, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's, you know, a little debatable or not very helpful, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of really inspiring things. And obviously one of them is the edge of vision and Arduino. Um, In terms of people, I have to say that the person who has inspired me the most and who actually got me into making, as I understand it today, is my supervisor, Anne-Louise Davidson. She's a professor in educational technology at Concordia University. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm an elementary school teacher. And I was a little dissatisfied with the way teaching is currently approached. And I wanted to do my PhD because I wanted to find better ways of approaching teaching kids. And But I wasn't quite sure how to do it or where I would go. And Anne-Louise Davidson had a little informal maker fair, not not a make media formal thing, but a little informal one at the university uh, with people from her network. And I went to it out of curiosity. And I just, that day I knew, okay, I found it. I found the person I want to work with. I found what I want to study and I've been studying it ever since. So I really have to thank Anne-Louise for introducing me to this world and to maker education because She's opened a lot of doors and a lot of avenues Mm. for teaching kids um, for me and for the people she works with. And uh, what's one thing you wish you'd know when you began your career? Oh, (laughs) wow. There are so many things I wish I knew when I started my career. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I was, our school system raises people to be good academics. Um, which is kind of ironic for an academic to say. Um, But I wish I had from a younger point, like I I do now, I, you know, I have experience and and the courage now, but I wish I had from the younger point to push boundaries a little more than I did. I was always that good student doing exactly what I was asked for. Um, But I just, I really wish I had pushed the boundaries. I had, you know, suggested to professor, no, I want to do this. You know, it's a little out of what you you wanted or recommended but I want to do this Uh, because I think this is how we create change if everybody is just going with the status quo we're never going to change anything Uh, whereas if we push the boundaries you know I have to admit some of the most inspiring kids I have are kids who come to me and push the boundaries and say I don't want to do the assignment like you suggested it's boring to me (laughs) you know and (laughs) most teachers get really upset by that Um, whereas I think okay, well, you know, these are my aims for this assignment. So let's say, I don't know, let's say it's English class. I want you to, to write something. I want you to learn the, 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 the rules of composition and how to write well. If you don't want to, I don't know, write a poem, then write a comic or write something else. Find something that inspires Mm -hmm. you to write. 
Yeah. Right. So yeah, maybe even learn more. Exactly. So to to not be so rigid and to push those boundaries a little more, um, you know, sometimes administration or whatever will say no to you. But mm-hmm. if nobody pushes those boundaries, we're not going to grow. So I, I wish yeah, I had true. done that from earlier, but I'm glad I'm doing it mm-hmm. now. Yeah. yeah, nice. It's never too late <laughs> yeah. to change. Exactly. <laughs> Then what's a common myth about your profession or field that you would like to set straight? Yeah. Um, so, you know, before we had the internet, teachers and schooling was critical for people to learn facts because we had to keep the facts in our head because the only other place they might be was, let's say, in a book in a library. So we really mm-hmm. had to learn those facts and carry them around with us. These days we have the internet. We can look up facts sure. anytime. What school needs to become and what they are becoming is a place where we learn how to learn by ourselves, where we learn how to be critical thinkers. So as I mentioned a little earlier, the internet has a lot of information and a lot of it is inaccurate information. So how do we search for facts online and make sure that they're accurate? Uh, How do we make things for ourselves rather than relying on companies to make things for us? How do we make things for ourselves? So, you know, there's a lot of societal pressure for teachers to still be that sage on the stage and deliver facts to um, kids and, and young adults in universities, let's say. But our role needs to change. It's it's really important that these kids start to develop these skills because they're going to need those in the future. And we need society to understand that. My role is no longer to be the one there imparting all the facts. My role is now to be a guide to help students learn to learn on their own. That's so true. Very interesting. We have a brief discussion about this with the last our first guest about how the role of teacher needs to evolve or has to evolve because the students are not the same, right? Yeah. So you need to be more like a guidance that that the one that knows everything. Exactly. So And I mean, there's so much to know these days. The teacher can't know everything anymore. There's just, yeah. it's, there's yeah. just no way. And it's fine, right? Yeah. They, they, they should be feel fine with that. Absolutely. It's okay not to know everything. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And it actually yeah. models, you know, I remember growing up as a kid, And seeing my teachers, and I just thought these people were perfect people and knew everything. Yeah. And I had this mm-hmm. sense of pressure that, oh my goodness, by the time I grow up, I'm going to have to be the same. You know, and I kept thinking, I can't, I can't do that. I can't know as much as they do. I can't be perfect like them. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're learning with your students, they not only see how to learn because you're learning in front of them. Like, let's say I don't know something. Mm-hmm. I say to them, I don't know. Let's mm-hmm. go find out. So they see how I learn. So I model to them how to, how I learn. But not only that, they realize, okay, she's not perfect. She doesn't know everything, and that's perfectly fine. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Um. So it. I also find it helps kids relax a little, enjoy the learning process a little more, a bit more. Yeah, agree. So true. And uh, last but not least, tell us something interesting about yourself. Most people don't know. Um. So. <laughs> I think a lot of people, I was born in Africa. I was born in South Africa and I grew up out in the middle of the African bush. (laughs) I went to a village school nearby, Um, but my childhood was basically out in the African bush. Now, you know, making as we know it today doesn't really exist, but a lot of the roots of the concepts I understand now and the way I think comes from my childhood 
because we didn't have a lot of toys um, in terms of mass-produced toys that came from toy companies. Most of our toys we made ourselves. So, you know, I would go out and I would make, a, you know, a various toys from the wood and the stones and the materials I had out in the African bush. I would make little forts. I would make, you know, all kinds of little things like that. And I think I have a really good understanding about how things work because of my childhood, because of being out there and just playing with my hands and playing with the materials that came from nature. Um, so, and the other thing I think, which is kind of ironic is I have a visual impairment. I am considered legally blind. Yeah, and that, that's a difficult one for people to understand. I can see, but uh, legally blind means that my vision impairment inhibits me from doing things that um, sighted people can do, right? So I can't drive. Um, there are certain things, certain jobs that I cer certainly cannot do because of my vision impairment. Um, and yet I find ma making fascinating. It's a very visual um, activity most of the time. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I find it very empowering. And one of my goals is actually to find ways of better making better, um, making, making <laughs> accessible to yeah, people with disabilities. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So that's that's something else I think a lot of people may not realize. Yeah, it's, and I think it's really important work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, true. Now, th those were the five friends book easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. But then it's time to dive into the topic of today. And as I mentioned earlier, that we're celebrating the Software Freedom Day and celebrating open source. So could you explain to our listeners what is open source? Sure. So open source actually started with software and it was basically people who wanted to make their software freely available to the public so that the public could use it as it was or modify it um, and then use it for their own purposes. So we can think of Linux, for example. And um, now it refers to we also have open source hardware. We have open source design processes. It's basically anything that a person develops and makes available to the public for the public to use for their own purposes, as is or even modified. And now that we're talking, of course, uh, open source and education, how would you rate the awareness of open source within education? That's interesting. Um, I think for the teachers who are really motivated by making and maker education, they know quite a lot about it. But I think they are quite a small group of people. I think generally speaking, the education world doesn't know that much yet about open source and its potential benefits. I think for those who have dabbled in it but don't have enough expertise, um, might actually be a little bit dissuaded by open source only because you do need to have a little bit of knowledge and expertise to use it because they're gonna be troubleshooting um, that you're gonna have to do. And if you don't expect that, you know, teachers who go into the classroom expecting something to work the first time without having to do any troubleshooting or um, adjustments, they might suddenly find themselves with 36 students looking at them with a, something that's not working. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of people can be discouraged by that. So I, I think it can be, I think the education world is getting to know more and more about open source for sure, but I think there's still a lot, a long way to go. What do you then think 
if we think to the future or hopefully maybe it's more there but what are the benefits of adopting open source in schools oh gosh the, uh, i think there are just so many benefits um the obvious and first one is cost i mean open source um it just reduces that cost barrier where um, teachers can even just purchase open source materials like Arduino and um, open source 3D printers, for instance, they're much cheaper. And so these materials can actually be brought into the classroom. Uh, I think it offers teachers who are, let's say, a little bit more advanced in, in their knowledge in these areas to actually improve things with their students, take these open source softwares or hardware or designs and work on them with their students to maybe improve them. Um, you know, with closed source um, software and, and hardware, you can't do that. You have to work with whatever you have as it is. Whereas these open source technologies and softwares and hardwares and um, design processes and such, they're made available to improve. Um, so I think they have a, a really, fantastic advantage for the education system if we were to take advantage of them more if we were to use them a little more but then like you said before that for a teacher who's maybe not that familiar with troubleshooting what needs to change that we could use more open source hardware for example in the school is it is it that the teachers are not comfortable with it exactly uh, first of all i think we have to change the perceptions and expectations uh, of teachers so that it is understood that they may not know how to work everything and that we're gonna figure this yeah. out together, teacher and the students. Second of all, there needs to maybe be some basic training. I don't think a teacher needs to be an expert in any of this because as we said before, a lot can be gained from learning with the students, but some basic knowledge of these areas I think will be important, especially how to find information online, how to access, uh, community groups of makers who, you know, often they can provide solutions to problems if you pose one to them on an online um, platform. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, it's it's been, there's evidence to suggest that, let's say, having a technician in the school who is an expert in these areas is really valuable. Um, this person is not focused on the teaching, they're focused on making sure the materials work. And then the teacher can focus on the actual teaching. And again, by teaching, I mean, guiding the students um, through a learning experience. Yeah, totally agree. So do you think that educating kids about open source, it should be something that maybe we could include in the computer science and technology curriculums? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think we should. I think open source isn't just about what it can do for us in the sense that, you know, we would have these things available to us. It's also about how we can contribute um again that we're not just passive consumers as the word um prosumers which is basically people who produce what they use not just purchase what they use um and i think you know with open source we can really start encouraging youth and young people to start being producers um in our society and not just consumers yeah i think that's a has a then bigger impact also on the mm -hmm. students that they understand what they can do what than for the future. Yeah, you know, and, and these days, you know, you hear people say all the time, well, nothing's free anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> open source is turning that around a bit. And I mm -hmm. like that, you know, um, where we can be in such a competitive society sometimes and uh, such an individualistic society sometimes. And this open source is kind of waving it in people's faces and saying, no, 
we can choose to share. We can choose to yeah, collaborate. True. Um, it's our choice. And open so people who share open source um, are choosing that uh, uh, that um, mentality. That's yeah, true. and I think it's often like if you help others, they help you back. It's that yeah. kind of same that we have. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Promoting collaboration rather than just doing everything independently on our own. Yeah, that's yeah. also a great thing to teach students yeah. and children, right? How to collaborate with others and share what you know. So yeah, that's great. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Nathalie, you work. You recently work with an open source project. Can you tell us, please, a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So this project um, was a MyTax internship that was initiated after the first wave of COVID nineteen when we had all of those um, PPE shortages, so the personal protective equipment shortages. And what happened was we noticed that the maker community really jumped on board and tried to address these shortages by creating their own um, PPE alternatives. So, you know, a big one that was adopted in a lot of hospitals were 3D printed face shields um, to help protect the um, frontline workers and the medical workers a little bit more from from exposure to the virus. And, um, and one of the big shortages was N95 respirators, which, you know, the difference between a mask that we wear, generally speaking, let's say in public, is that it's intended to protect the people around us. In case, let's say I have COVID and I don't know it, if I'm wearing a mask and I sneeze or when I'm talking, at least I'm not spreading it as much as I would be if I weren't wearing it. But a respirator is what a, a frontline worker or a medical professional would be wearing to protect themselves. It filters the air so that the contaminated particles don't come through and they don't inhale it. But um, as when COVID first began, these respirators were obviously in short supply. And so a lot of makers were trying to come up with 3D designs for creating reusable respirators um, that could be used when N95s weren't available. The which was wonderful. I think I think this just demonstrates the generosity and the the wonderful mentality of the maker community. And I, I think it's fantastic. Our concern as a team was these are wonderful, but PPE is usually rigorously tested to make sure that it's effective, to make sure that frontline workers and medical professionals aren't putting themselves at risk when they don't think they are. And most of these things that the maker community was coming up uh, with weren't tested. So thank, thank, thankfully, due to Anne Louise Davidson's network, which she is tirelessly always developing, <laughs> um, we knew an engineer um, who specializes in aerosol filtration. And he and his, um, it's his organization that he works with, IRSST, were willing to share their equipment and their skills with us and teach us how to do these tests. So what we decided to do was, okay, let's take the most promising ideas out there and test them to see if they're safe. And then if they aren't, or if they need some adjustments, we can make the adjustments again, open source, right? Um, and so we use 3D printing to create a lot of our, our designs because 3D printing is just so flexible and malleable. And we use an open source 3D printer, which is again, um, made possible to us because they are far cheaper. Uh, we used a $300 printer to do this, not a fancy $5,000 printer. And we printed and tested a bunch of different ideas. And we found one idea that was just fantastic. It 
solved a whole bunch of problems with the other 3D printed ideas. And then what we did was we tested them using a piece of equipment that is usually used in hospitals to make sure that the N95 respirator is fit properly. And we tested this device, it's called a mask frame, over a certified surgical mask, which is known to filter um, particles as uh, very well. So to filter out the contaminated air particles. And we found that the results were comparable to an N95 respirator. Now, I should mention, <laughs> it needs further testing. Um, as I said, PPE needs rigorous testing to make sure that it's safe and then that, that it will protect the people wearing the PPE. This still needs to be tested further. But if a person, let's say a medical professional, finds themselves in a situation where they don't have PPE available to them, let's say an N95 respirator, available to them. This may be a good alternative in that kind of situation. Um, it, it needs to be further tested and I think it's going to be very promising. I think that it will be quite effective based on what we saw. But I don't want to I don't want to make claims yet that um, oh you can just use this instead of an N95 respirator. No, no, you know, N95s they've been rigorously tested, they're certified for a reason. But this may be uh, an option in a, a case of an emergency or a lack of other options. If you want to learn more about the mask frame Natalie has been working with, check out our Edivision episode 2 on Arduino's YouTube, LinkedIn and Facebook pages. You get to see how the mask frame looks like, how it works and where to find the instructions to create it yourself. You can find all the episodes as well as a link to her instructable page for the mask from arduino.cc slash education slash Edivision. Now, let's continue the conversation with our guest. We're talking with Nathalie Duponcel, a doctoral candidate in educational technology at Concordia University, Montreal, Canada, about open source and education. And your current PhD research focuses on maker education. Could you first tell us what is maker movement and what is maker education? Sure. So the maker movement um, is a current resurgence of do-it-yourselfers and making um, that has basically arisen due to the existence of the internet so we can share ideas um, more easily globally and to open source technologies which have made things far more accessible to the average person um, versus let's say only to experts in in companies um, now of course human beings have been making ever since we made our first tool um, and people have been making ever since then and globally we've been making but the the current maker movement um, when we talk about the maker movement is that resurgence that's taken place over the last 20 years, let's say. Um, now, um, maker education tries to take the maker mindset, what we call the maker mindset and the maker culture. So like any culture, for instance, um, a culture is about the practices and values that a group of people hold. So um, the practices and values of the maker movement, which tends to be a lot, you know, a lot about collaboration, working with each other, trying to find solutions to everyday problems, trying to take that mindset and that culture and bring it into schools. Uh, and that's what maker education is about. It's not about teaching kids how to use 3D printers or teaching kids how to use a drill. That happens as a part of the process, but that's not the focus. The focus is to get kids to develop a certain mindset, a certain mentality of collaboration, 
of sharing ideas, of um, finding solutions um, for themselves and for people in society. It's about developing skills like creativity, thinking outside of the box, or in, in the case of kids, keeping that skill of thinking outside of the box, um, about innovation and design skills. So it's, it's about those skills and that mentality more than just about learning how to operate a 3D printer. As I said, that's great, that's good. Glad we're learning, that they're learning that too, but that's not the primary focus. Um, and so that's what maker education is. It's, it's trying to, and, and it's also trying to make that link between what kids are learning in schools, like the theoretical stuff that they're learning in schools and seeing the practical applications. There's so many, I'm, a, I'm an elementary school teacher, but I specialize in mathematics uh, education. And so many of my kids in high school, when I was working with high school kids said to me, why? Do I need this math? How is it ever going to be helpful? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, you know. So I remember. <laughs> I think I've even asked that myself. Absolutely. You know, kids. I've had so many well, kids ask me this. that. You know, and um, <laughs> making is a wonderful, wonderful way to demonstrate to them how the math is useful to them. You know, um, so it, it's it's important about making that connection too. So, I what kids are learning in schools. Um, already is very important. They do need to learn that stuff, but making helps it be a little bit more relatable to them. And uh, so this this research of yours, uh, well, you, you already talk about since you were little, you have this of uh, creating things, yeah. right? So, but what or when or how did you say I want to research this maker and education? How? how was yeah. That? So it stemmed from. Um, as I said, I, I, I am an elementary school teacher. I've been teaching in school since 2005 or so. Um, mm -hmm. But I was dissatisfied with the way teaching was still approached. Uh, I, it was good, but I thought we could do more. And I wasn't entirely sure of how to, to do it. So I initially started my graduate studies in mathematics education. Um, to see how we could improve math teaching so that kids would have an easier time with it, or at least enjoy it a little bit more. And there were definitely some um, good strategies there, but I still thought, oh, there could really, there could still be more. There could still be a way of making this more relevant to kids. Uh, and I guess I had making already in mind in the sense that um, I did a lot of activities with kids, practical activities where we were building things, but I didn't know that the maker movement and maker culture existed at the time and of course that's when i met um and louise davidson and this whole new world <laughs> was opened up to me uh and as i said the moment i saw what she was doing and what the maker movement was doing i it was just an immediate oh yeah this is it this is absolutely it we need to get this in schools so what i'm researching is okay well how do we do that because making in a garage somewhere or making in a community maker space that's one thing like that that's we can do that how do we get that activity into a school where there are expectations in terms of what a teacher covers with their students in terms of how we evaluate students learning in terms of safety um you know what we can safely do with students and in terms of just sometimes practical things like mm -hmm. well Usually the, the student period is, let's say, 45 to 75 minutes. <laughs> what can you do in that time? Yeah. Um, so basically what I research is how can we do this successfully and 
keep that all important focus on developing the mindset and those what we call 21st century skills, you know, creativity, Mm -hmm. collaboration, innovation, that kind of thing. How do we keep that and not have it become about learning how to use a 3D printer, learning how to code, Mm -hmm. learning, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically my research. How do we do this? And what I'm doing is I am asking, interviewing teachers who already do this in their classroom about what helped them do this like what are they able to do and what helped them to be able to do that and what's hindering them what's pre- mm. preventing them from being able to do what they would really want to do yeah and um i'm still looking for <laughs> teachers so <laughs> we can share my email address so if anybody wants to to contribute i would certainly be happy to have more teachers because i think the more teachers we speak to the better idea because you know all education systems work slightly differently. They all, they do have commonalities, but there are some differences. So the more people we can speak to, the more um, challenges or solutions we can uh, encounter as well. That's, that's what I'm researching. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping to be able to, with my um, doctoral dissertation, be able to come up with recommendations on how school boards and education ministries and, and governing organizations can make it easier for teachers to be able to integrate making into their classroom activities. You mentioned that you're talking to teachers that are already kind of having this maker mindset, but what about if we have a teacher who's listening us to now and they would like to have some tips where to get started, how to get started? Do you have any recommendations for a teacher who is new to this maker mindset? Yeah, well, obviously, Edu-Vision is a good place to start. <laughs> um, I like your program because you have a lot of ideas that range from very simple to more complex. So I think that's good because, you know, in, in, in our enthusiasm, sometimes makers, we tend to share our most complex and like awe-inspiring project. But for a beginner, that can be really intimidating. Making doesn't have to um, use high tech. It doesn't have to use that. So if you're a new teacher and you're intimidated by it or you just want to get started slowly, you can just get started with paper circuits or you can get started with sewing in the classroom or you can get started with building something out of wood, something simple like a box, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you can find resources online in so many different places. Um, you can look for some ideas. Um, I'm part of a group called Education Makers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a website, um, educationmakers.ca, where we share our projects. And you'll see that some of them are more advanced than others in terms of the tech that we use. Um, Instructables, where I put that um, Instructable page for the mask frame, they have a lot of fantastic ideas there. Mm-hmm. And again, not necessarily using high tech for it, digital tech- technology. Some of the projects are just using materials that you can find around your house. And that can be a great way to start with kids, especially online. Um, That's been a big challenge is when the kids are stuck at home, our students, um, and they don't necessarily have the tools and materials available to them that they would normally have in a makerspace. What can we do with them? So a lot of our projects have been revolving around whatever is available at home. Um, So, you know, for new teachers, there are so many resources online. Um, Also check on um social media platforms like facebook because a lot of um school districts and such will have a facebook page of enthusiastic teachers Mm -hmm. who share ideas 
um, I'm part of one. It's it's in French, so um, it may not be it may not be accessible to most of your viewers, but um, they you know the elementary school teachers just share like oh um, and you know because in our school system we have these curriculum requirements. Well, I did this activity to meet this curriculum requirement. Um, you know, so the teachers who who work in Quebec can see that and say, oh, that's a great idea, you know, and, and use it. So check your local um, uh, Facebook um, groups and things like that. You can obviously tell that I'm really enthusiastic about making and maker education. And um, I think it is the way of the future. I think we have to be careful of not making it just any other school subject like we've done with a lot of things, you know, things like science class in school. It's not anything like what a scientist actually does. And I don't want that to happen to making. I don't want it to become about just learning how to use and operate certain machinery. It needs to, we need to really keep the original culture around making in the schools. And, you know, for teachers who are trying to do this to persist with it, I think they're encountering a lot of resistance in some cases, particularly when it comes to evaluation, how to assess kids because we're not assessing facts in this case we're assessing skills mm. and um just to persist with it a lot of teachers are doing this on their own mm. they don't necessarily have the support of their school or their school board um and they're doing this on their own so connect with other teachers who are doing it even if it's not in your school area because we can share ideas that way and we can encourage each other to continue and persisting with it because i do think this is the way of the future yeah. so we need to we need to stay strong and um, stay together and work together on this. Yeah. yeah, and also to give some additional resources for to teachers. I have a website that I found, which is makerspaceforeducation.com. They 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 explain you there uh, what is maker education, what is a maker space, and they have some guidelines on how to start and some tips. So check that out; it's very interesting. Yes, uh, I'm really looking forward to the results from your research. I want to read it when you have it. Do you, do you have some timeline? Do, you, do we know when we have some recommendations from you? Um, I'm hoping within the next several months. Okay. Um, Ooh, nice. Still have to nice. go through the formal process, you know, with the university of writing the dissertation and that kind of thing, which is can be time consuming. <laughs> yeah. But in the course. next several months, yes, I would like to, I should have some things to share. If our audience wants to follow you, where can they follow you? How they should connect with you online? Primarily, I work with the Education Makers. So check us out on educationmakers.ca. LinkedIn is a good place to reach me as well. So you can just search my name, Natalie Duponcel, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. Also, as you mentioned, if have some teachers that will be uh, like to be part of your research, they can connect with you there. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Natalie. Well, thank you for having me. This is a really great conversation. I love what you're doing. Um, I've always loved Edgivision and I love what you're doing. And um, as I mentioned before, for beginner teachers, this is a great place to start because Arduino has a lot of um, supportive materials like your student kits and, um, you know, where there are those instructions. So a teacher who knows nothing about it can just literally sit and look at the instructions and they have it all there to start with. So We want to grow this community yeah, of exactly. teachers and support each other. So thank for you. For sure, sharing. Thank you, Natalie. See you soon. Take care. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye. 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 That's it for today. Next week, we will have, uh, we will talk about self-driving transportation. 
with Chetin Merichli, an entrepreneur publish expert in, in AI, robotics, and machine learning. And he also is a CEO and co-founder of Locomation, a leading developer of safe and reliable autonomous driving technology for semi-trucks. Don't forget to tune in this Thursday, the 16th, to the second live episode of Edivision New Season 4 on our YouTube, Facebook and LinkedIn channels to participate in the discussion. And remember that you can watch it afterward if you can join us live. See you all there.